stand here and share with you what God has shown me through our last lesson. So I'm really a, a blessing and honor to stand up here. So two of the most famous Christians in England were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Both were great preachers of the gospel. And early in their ministries, they fellowshiped and they even exchanged pulpits. But on one occasion, they had a disagreement which actually made it to the newspapers where Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he attended the theater. Interestingly enough, Spurgeon smoked cigars, a practice many believers would condemn. So who is right and who is wrong? Ladies, today we will examine one of the most common and oftentimes one of the most serious problems plaguing the church today, disunity. It is the disunity that arises when Christians weak and strong are divided on issues of the faith that are non-essential, but rather preferences. Those gray areas where scripture is not specific, but rather are not specific, but we are ta not talking about what the Bible clearly states as sin, because those objective truths will never change, but rather those areas of preference those areas which are not clearly defined. Today, for example, the Bible clearly tells us to remember Christ's death and mandates the ordinance of communion, but we're not told how often to take communion. We're told to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, but we're not told the mode of music, contemporary, hymns, both. Uh, we are told to study the word and to hide it in our hearts, but we're not told what version of the Bible to use. These are just a few examples of gray areas or preferences that a church or individuals themselves can be divisive over. And sadly, Christians have left churches over these issues, and even more sadly, there have been church splits. I'll never forget our first ministry in Kinderhook, Michigan, where we almost had a church split over a painting of the Last Supper that some wanted to take down and others wanted to leave up, and then they had pew, or, uh, chairs on the pulpit that some wanted to stay and some wanted them to go. And I mean, it was just, it was a big mess. So fortunately, we didn't have a split over that. But those are the types of things that happen in churches. Unfortunately, this is so real. So as we will see from our study today, disunity has always been a major problem with God's people. The Old and the New Testament are replete with examples of fighting, wars, and quarrels. And almost every church in the New Testament had divisions to contend with, and countless churches had to be reminded of the importance of unity. Ladies, far too often, selfishness, pride, and a spirit of unforgiveness prevails in the church because of the mentality that the church exists to meet one's own individual needs. And when that doesn't happen, one becomes disgruntled, and it causes disunity within the church. And disunity grieves the heart of God and brings dishonor to his name. D.L. Moody said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Ladies, think of the church that you attend. We have all been saved from different backgrounds. Some of you may have come from a church that practice a little more strict, legalistically type things. Others may have come from churches that were very open and a little more on the liberal side. 
Some of you are accustomed to and prefer a more structured liturgical type of worship. And others may prefer worship that is unstructured, spontaneous, even clapping during music. Some in your churches have been exposed to years of biblical teaching. Others may have just heard the gospel. All of these factors can cause disunity if we're not on guard. Remember, diversity does not mean disunity. Diversity can strengthen a congregation and is a witness to the lost world how Christ has banded together dissimilar people in love and fellowship and true unity. So Paul's abiding concern was for every Christian to have a deep desire for preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see that in Ephesians 4.3. And for putting on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, we see in Colossians 3.14. The danger to unity that Paul addresses in Romans 14.1 to Romans 15.13 is the conflict that arises between those Paul refers to as strong and weak believers, those who are mature in the faith and those who are immature, those who understand and enjoy certain freedoms in Christ, and those who still feel either shackled or threatened by certain religious and cultural taboos and practices that were deeply ingrained in their lives before coming to Christ. As we examine this portion of scripture, we will see how we in the church are able to handle weaker or stronger brothers in the faith, and how are we to maintain that unity. Verses 1 through 12, Paul addresses the issue of strong and weak Christians by using the example of eating and ceremonial laws. Paul is using food and observing the Sabbath and other special days to compare weak and strong believers. We can describe a weak Jewish believer as one saved out of a strict legalistic background, background, one who strictly adhered to special diets and holy days, and therefore was unable to let go of the religious ceremonies and rituals of his past. Conversely, a weak Gentile believer who had been steeped in pagan idolatry and rituals most likely would feel that contact with anything remotely to their past including meat that had been offered to a pagan deity and sold in the marketplace, was sinful. Many Jewish and Gentile believers had very sensitive consciences in, in these areas, and they were not mature enough to be free of those convictions. On the other hand, a mature Jewish believer understood his freedom in Christ and realized the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic Law were no longer binding. And the mature Gentile understood that idols are not gods, and therefore he could eat meat that had been offered to these idols without violating his conscience. So having described a weaker and a stronger believer, we are told in verse 1 that a stronger believer, believer is to receive or to accept those who are weak. The Greek verb for accept literally means to take into friendship and to grant access to one's heart. This literally commands strong believers to willingly accept weaker believers. They were to give wholehearted acceptance to the weak Jewish believers who were weak in the faith and not able to let go of those religious ceremonies and rituals. They were also to wholeheartedly accept those weak 
Gentile believers who were steeped in pagan idolatry and rituals regarding the meat that was offered to the idols. And not only were they to accept them, but they were not to pass judgment on their convictions. In verses 2 to 3, Paul harshly warns against the strong believer, accusing the weak believer as being legalistic and self-righteous. And he warns the weak believer not to judge the strong believer by condemning his actions. A mature believer should not judge the sincere but underdeveloped thoughts that govern a weak believer's conduct. An immature believer should not judge a mature believer as being in sin. And why? Because in verses 3 through 4, God, it states that God has accepted them and that he alone is their judge. God alone judges the hearts and minds of his saints. In Paul's day, the mature believer's faith allowed him to exercise freedom in Christ by eating the inexpensive meat sold at the pagan meat markets. But the weak believers maintained a stricter diet, and they avoided eating meat that was unclean or meat that they may have been sacrificed to idols. But by implication, Paul tells us the strong are not to hold the weak in contempt as legalistic and self-righteous, and the weak are not to judge the strong to be irresponsible or carnal. So both the weak and strong believers are to do this because God is our ultimate judge, and thus we are not to judge another in this way. So how Christ evaluates each believer is what matters, and his judgment does not take into account religious tradition or personal preference. We have only one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul continues with the mature and immature believer in verses 5 through 9 by giving an example of the observance of holy days. The weak Jewish believers still felt compelled to observe the Sabbath, and other day, special days associated with Judaism, although it was no longer required. So the weak Gentile believer wanted to separate himself from the special days of festivities associated with his former paganism because of its immorality and idolatry. But once again, the stronger believer is unaffected by those concerns. Each believer must follow his or her own convictions on matters not specifically commanded or prohibited in Scripture. Verses 8 through 12 tell us we are to live to the Lord. Whether a believer is weak or strong, the motive behind a believer's decisions about issues of conscience must, must be to please the Lord, because every believer will give an account of himself, and the Lord will judge each of us individually. For example, my husband's convictions are such that he will not officiate the wedding of unsaved people. He well realizes the Bible does not prohibit this, as they are not unequally yoked. And he respects the right of other pastors who have no such convictions. But for him, it is a violation of his own conscience, and so he abstains from officiating these weddings. He does not judge other pastors who have the liberty to do so, and he should not be judged by others for not violating his conscience. So in verses 1 through 12, we see that believers, both weak and strong, have the same Lord. Today is no different, ladies. Whether weak or strong believers, the church today should seek to serve the Lord. And someday we will all stand before the judgment seat and give an account of ourselves. 
So thus, we are not to be judgmental of one another, nor are we to unjustly criticize others in the faith. Practically speaking, ladies, we are not to judge those who have come from backgrounds where their consciences convict them of refraining from certain practices, foods, etc. If your convictions are not to go to movies, not to dance, play cards, then for you to do such things would violate your conscience and be sin. By the same token, for those of you that don't share those same convictions, you should not encourage the weaker brother to violate his own conscience. Ladies, having opinions, preferences, or convictions is not moral or immoral. There is no right or wrong when it comes to Christian liberty issues. It means that weaker Christians should be accepted and not judged by those opinions or convictions of a stronger believer. It is a man's heart, if a man's heart is sincere in his desire to serve God, and if there is credible evidence they are trying to do that, then nothing should alienate us from them. Every believer will give an account of himself, and the Lord will judge the decisions that we make. His verdict is the only one that matters. In verses 13 to 23, Paul shows us how to treat and build up one another in the faith. Paul is saying that more dangerous than judging a brother is to put an obstacle or stumbling block in his way. We're not to offer or encourage others to go against their convictions. As I mentioned, some people have convictions against such things as dancing or playing cards or going to movies. The Bible does not strictly prohibit these things, but it does, in fact, give us general guidelines. Paul is saying in verse 14 that nothing is unclean in and of itself. No foods are unclean, no days are unclean. But if your acceptance or rejection of these things violates yours or another sense of duty to the Lord, you could cause him or yourself to stumble. If each believer is trying to honor and serve God, he must not violate his own conscience. As strong believers, we don't want to flaunt our Christian liberties, causing a weaker brother to stumble, and the world to see that our freedoms in Christ have caused a weaker brother to stumble. And we, as the weaker brother, should not judge the stronger brother that doesn't hold the same convictions as we do. If you are convicted, again, not to do these things, then don't. But on the other hand, don't judge those who exercise those liberties, thinking you are more spiritual, spiritual because these things are not sin issues. Our goal here is to not hurt or offend a brother. If our careless use of our liberty causes hurt, then we are no longer walking according to love. How we treat each other in the faith will either destroy our testimony to the world or build it up. Verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 through 19 tell us we are to build each other up. We are to pursue those things that make peace and edify each other. Christian liberty is a gift from God, so enjoy it. Don't misuse it. It should not cause our brothers to stumble, be grieved, or harmed in any way. 
and it should never give the watching world an excuse for it to be used against us. As strong believers, we are to build up a weaker believer, not tear them down. God continues his work in the hearts and consciences of weaker believers. Ladies, we would consider it a crime to deface a Rembrandt painting, to shatter a sculpture of Michelangelo, to smash a Stradivarius violin, or as my husband would say, any guitar. How much more appalling is it to tear down a work of God, a man for whom Christ died? By sinning against the brethren and wounding their consciences when they are weak, you sin against Christ. And Paul is reminded us again that he's not speaking about sinful and unholy things, but about discretionary liberties that are good gifts from God. All things indeed are clean, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense, which we see in verse 20. Paul is saying that if we abuse our Christian liberty, we become an offense to God. And why? Because we cause a brother or a sister to stumble. We must exercise our Christian liberty with great care, lest we harm others and even ourselves by becoming an offense to God. Our Christian liberty should never be used carelessly or selfishly. In concluding chapter 14, Paul addresses the strong believer in verse 22 saying that if genuine faith and a clear understanding of scripture, your convictions do not inhibit you from practices or activities, you are free to participate in them and you are not to feel condemned by a weaker brother. By the same token, verse 23 admonishes the weaker brother to stick with your convictions because for him to go against those convictions, it would in fact be sin. Paul continues in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, with an admonition to the strong believer to bear with the weaker believer, which literally means to pick up or carry a weight. This word refers to a strong obligation. The strong are not merely to tolerate the weaknesses of the weak, but are to help them shoulder their burdens by showing love and practical consideration for them. We are to build up the weak or the immature believer in the faith. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 states, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we can show this by not, by not being critical or condescending and by showing respect for sincere views or practices that we may not agree with. We're not to argue about minor issues or to be critical of those who may still be sensitive about a former religious practice or taboo. The right use of Christian liberty which the strong believer understands and appreciates, often also involves self-sacrifice. The end of verse first states, and not to please ourselves. If I know that you have a conviction over playing cards or listening to certain music and I have you over for dinner, 
I'm not going to have that blasting, and I'm not going to ask you to play cards. That's a self-sacrifice. Actually, it's not really a sacrifice, but it is kind of an example. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. The object of pleasing our neighbor is to promote his good and his edification. Our true motivation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength is because Christ is our example. In verse 3, we see that. If Christ had wanted to please himself instead of the Father, he would not have divested himself of his glory and become a man, certainly not a bondservant. His ultimate purpose was to please God the Father and accomplish his will. Our model and motivation for helping other Christians should be from the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 encourages believers to be like-minded toward one another with one mind and one mouth so that, again, we will glorify God. And if we have one mind and with one mouth, we love and praise God, then we will have unity. Again, Paul is urging the strong and the weak believers, despite their differing views on non-essential issues, to pursue loving spiritual harmony in regards to matters over which the Bible is silent. And our pursuit of unity is not primarily to please other believers, but again, to glorify God. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, has accepted us into God's family. How much more should we be willing to accept each other in spite of our differences over issues of conscience? Jesus Christ is our pattern for accepting one another. If we follow the Lord's example in receiving each other in love and without judgment or condescension, we do so as he did to the glory of God. Failure to accept others in love and compassion is an affront to the Savior who accepted us. Paul ends this section in verses 9 through 12 showing that God's plan has always been to bring Jew and Gentile alike into his kingdom and to bridge the gap of prejudice of Christian Jews against their Gentile brothers. We end with verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lady Satan would love nothing more than to cripple or destroy the witness of the church. One way he does that is by causing disunity or divisiveness over non-moral gray areas, which are merely preferences amongst the saints. We need to tenaciously guard against this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 sums up this portion of Scripture perfectly by saying, So whether you eat or drink, or, whether you, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our Christian liberty should always be lived out to the glory of God. And lastly, Ephesians 4.1-3 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. 
Father, help us to keep the unity of the church by putting others, their needs, their preferences above our own. Help us to not be judgmental to their convictions, but to support them, whether they are the weak or the strong. And we do this all to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies.